you know, there has been no pay increase. There are no um, competitive benefits being added. But what they're seeing is that their physician counterparts have gotten a few different raises. Welcome to the Emergency NP and PA Workforce Podcast. Here we navigate the EM labor market, the role of the EM, NP, and PA, the relationship between the clinicians and facilities, and all the financial issues that come with it. I am your humble host, Omar Nava. I'm an emergency medicine physician assistant who's been in the business for 20 years. I'm also the vice president of advanced practice provider services at Ivy Clinicians, and I'm very excited to bring you this podcast. To all the emergency medicine clinicians out there, we know what you go through and we appreciate you. Today, I'm very happy and excited to host our guest, Hilary Homez, emergency medicine physician assistant. Hilary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Omar. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great. As I said, I'm really excited to have you here. I'd like the audience to know not only is Hillary an emergency medicine PA, but she's a lead PA that makes her a leader in the industry. Uh, Hillary, would you please tell us just a brief story about your journey becoming a leader in emergency medicine? Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to talk with you today. So I graduated PA school in uh, 2011, and my first emergency medicine job was in Chicago with Apollo MD Staffing Agency at Norwegian American Hospital. Um, I had the best ER director of all time, Dr. Matt Kleimeyer, and he basically taught me from the very beginning to work hard, efficiently, and practice evidence-based medicine. And he was um, quite possibly the best director I could ever have. He used to you know, bake us cakes as well as just, you know, show us what hard work looked like. And I was really just blown away by his clinical skills and his work ethic. So I've always admired him. And that's sort of where I got my uh, first lead PA job. Um, Since then, I've worked at different HCA emergency departments uh, in Nashville. That being Centennial Medical Center was um, where I worked the past eight years with Envision. I was lead on and off for two years there. And Currently, I'm at Northcrest Medical Center with APP as their lead PA. Awesome. And for our audience, uh, some of you may be familiar with the Nashville market, uh, others not. Uh, let me tell you the stripes uh, that Hillary bears on her shoulder uh, for working at Centennial and filling the leadership on the role are uh, stripes that are hard earned. Uh, so kudos to you for that. Hillary, one thing that I, you know, I said at the opening of the podcast, uh, what's our objective? It's simply to share and inform. And there's a lot of knowledge and, and, and facts and information that I think sometimes uh, we may take for granted that everybody knows, but not everybody knows. And our audience includes fellow NPs, PAs, uh, ED docs, ED directors, employers, so we have a wide spectrum of the audience, and they may not know everything. And one of the things that, uh, that, that I like to inform the audience at large about it is the following. Uh, emergency medicine physicians, board certified, go through a residency. That path is pretty much universal uh, throughout the country. 
yes, there's some variances in, in, in residencies, and yes, there's some variance in, in abilities, uh, but for the most part, they all go through this universal process. Not so with emergency medicine, PAs, and MPs. W- w- would you agree with that? Absolutely. So the, the reason I'd like to start with that and tee that off, in, during my tenure, I encountered a wide spectrum of knowledge and skill among the NP and PA workforce. It's a wide spectrum, a lot of variability. And as a leader, it could be challenging trying to manage those different levels of talent within the same department. Here's some examples. Who's going to see what patients? What are the interac- interactions going to be like between EMPAs, MPs, and their supervising docs? Uh, does it depend who, which supervising doc is on that day? What are some of the interactions going to be with consultants? Are PAs and MPs going to talk to urology but not talk to neurology? What do the shifts look like when you're assigning shifts? Do you say, you know, Omar's a junior PA. I really can't put him on an overnight shift or some of these other single doc coverage shifts. I need to keep him in a protected shift, maybe in fast track until he gets a little bit more experience. Or, hey, am I going to insult Christian by relegating him only to fast track when I know that he's a high-speed ninja PA (laughs) and can do a lot more? Tell me about your experience in in, in a leadership position managing the wide uh, variability in knowledge and skill among EM and P's and PAs. Yeah, that has been really difficult. I think ultimately every job I've had, the physicians or the ER directors are expecting the type of quality APC, NP or PA that is that of a, an experienced APP. It's really difficult to figure out before they come on the job whether or not they're going to be comfortable seeing everything all at once. Um, at least for PAs, we know that when they're in school and they finish school, they essentially have finished basically a third-year medical school rotation, clinical rotation, and then they're practicing, they're released to practice independently. So as PAs, we know that they need a lot of guidance before they can go out into the workforce and know everything they need to know to go and practice independently. But many physicians, nurses, other ER workers don't understand that. So it, it is extremely challenging. I've found that a lot of our staffing agencies have wanted, again, uh, PAs or NPs that can come out and work as an experienced provider, but they're not willing to necessarily pay more or offer good benefits. So it's been quite a challenge, uh, as well as uh, I know that there are multiple NP schools, MPA schools that are sort of popping up everywhere. So we don't really know what the quality of education is between those programs, um, especially with uh, there being online NP schools now. So it's really sort of uh, kind of a crapshoot at times. So in your answer, you, you, you talked a little bit about the challenges on the spectrum of uh, junior uh, NPPA clinicians and some of the experienced ones as far as a, how do you recruit them and, and do you, can you pay them what it, what it takes to, to recruit them. As a leader in the department right now, give us a little bit of an example of some of the challenges you have with retention of talent. I think it really is um, department dependent. We found significant difficulties at my last department retaining pr- 
providers, uh, essentially what would be happening is, um, you know, there wasn't necessarily significant pay increase from 2015, even though, you know, inflation was 2.8% on average uh, per year. They would, again, want someone very experienced, but they'd be paying them the same rate they've been paying for the last 10 to 15 years. And all the while, the work environment has become more difficult. They've, you know, created overnight shifts. Uh, of course, COVID happened, and then they're, they were flexing hours a significant amount. So we had a huge turnover, you know, at some of our uh, departments within Nashville and ultimately lost all of our good, you know, uh, experienced PAs and NPs, and, and they continue to turn over. Thankfully, I'm at a job now that has competitive salary. We've had some clinicians there to, that have been there for a while. But again, the benefits and the pay are are significantly improved from the other um, emergency departments. So I think that that makes a huge difference. Great. That's good information. Um, let, let's stay a little bit with within this topic Um we know that money can be a, a sticky issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always say, you know, we're all consumers of some product or service, and we're all sellers of some product or, or service. And each person on either side of that transaction doesn't want to give up money. It's just natural. That's fine. <laughs> when I started in emergency medicine 20 years ago, I was offered my first job, which was emergency medicine, before I graduated. And I thought this was the best thing here. I'm not even done with PA school and I'm being offered a, a job by the company that holds a contract where I was doing my clinical rotation. I just thought it was awesome. And so 20 years ago, I was offered $38 an hour with full benefits and matching 401k up, up to 100% of 6% of my contributions. And I just thought that was uh, <laughs> you know, the best thing. Uh, then, uh, then the war started. And, and I deployed, and I quickly took a huge pay cut uh, doing that. <clears throat> That's a different story. Uh, now across the country in modern times, there are different pay uh, models. And pay can vary from the 70s to over $100 an hour. And even then, the compensation package as a whole can vary quite a bit uh, from 401k to uh, profit sharing, maybe PTO, who knows. One thing that I found recently is when employers do or don't offer some type of incentive component for APPs, uh, that's NPs and PEs, to build the company's wealth, any of those incentives would be matching 401k. Uh, when the company does well, the employee does well, or perhaps profit sharing. Mm-hmm. When the company does well, the employee does well. So I, I've seen impacts when employers do and do not offer this. Can you tell us, uh, have you seen an impact on, on, on the workforce, on, on their perspective, when employers do offer such mechanisms or they don't offer them? How does it affect themselves, seeing themselves as part of the team? Of course. So, um, and this, my perspective, just to remind everyone, was that I worked at the same department mostly for eight years. And unfortunately, recently, they've gone through some really tough times over the last couple of years. Very difficult time trying to retain PAs and MPs with experience. And 
Um, what I've seen is countless good ABC clinicians have left um, because, you know, there has been no pay increase. There are no um, competitive benefits being added. Of course, we know inflation's through the roof. Um, but what they're seeing is that their physician counterparts have gotten a few different raises over the past 10 years. Um, they're being incentivized for meeting different metrics like sepsis, STEMI, TPA. Uh, we're seeing the same patients. We're not getting those incentives. They basically feel expendable. They know that, you know, they've tried to negotiate. They have put all of this time in with the company. They're not feeling like there's any sort of um, effort made to retain them. And so they're leaving either the field or... You know, they're going to different companies like uh, that that are offering those things. Um, and it's really just it's, it's too bad because um, I think we are losing a lot of our good and experienced uh, PAs and NPs in emergency medicine because they're not feeling valued um, in their workplace because they're not getting any pay raises. So, you know, these new graduates will come in and, and make the same amount and get the same offer as someone with 10 years of experience who might be a phenomenal clinician and a great leader. Um, and I know we're going to go into leadership later, but, you know, when there's no, a lot of these providers are also finding there isn't much movement up through the company. And so they, like Christian, you know, leave the field and, and pursue other opportunities. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that. There is something that I want to explore with you on that last point about, about leadership. Uh, but you, you mentioned something that, that, that was important, and that's this issue of uh, some APCs, nurse practitioners and PAs, were perhaps seeing uh, their, their physician counterparts being rewarded or incentivized, could have been in sepsis or, or, or other markers of performance, and not so with the NPs and PAs. Did I hear that part mm -hmm, right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, I, I find that fascinating about uh, maybe four or six years ago under a different uh, contractor in, in my uh, position as a, as a PA uh, director. Uh, we were kind of reorganizing and, and talking about incentives, but specifically aligning incentives. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I developed a scorecard uh, for NPs and PAs in, in the emergency department. And when I was asked, well, what will the components of the scorecard will, will be? I said, they'll either be 100% or 99% of the scorecard that we developed together for a physician. Hmm. Because uh, there is no variance or forgiveness for a sepsis criteria for a PA or an NP. Mm -hmm. Meaning if a hospital has a benchmark, hey guys, we need to get to 88% on our sepsis. They don't say, but if you're a PA or an NP, we only expect you to get to 60%. Right. Am I correct? Is that your experience? We have no variance in expectations. Is that, that right? That is absolutely correct. <laughs> right. So in this example, we're examining the terminal behavior, the terminal outcome. What is it that we expect? So it would seem crazy to me that an organization would, would identify a terminal outcome and say, this is so important. We're going to incentivize and we're going to put money to this. Mm -hmm. But if somebody else does that, well, uh, we won't incentivize it. So it, that's that's difficult to wrap my head around. Yeah. Uh, so I'm glad you mentioned that simply from the point of view of 
Are we incentivizing the right uh, behaviors and the right outcomes? And are we incentivizing everybody to move through them and not just uh, some folks? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about on, on the sticky money issue. Mm-hmm. Um, RV, RVUs. RVUs have fascinated me for the 20 years that I've practiced. And out of those 20 years, I've been a, a leader in the emergency department for NPs and PAs for 19 of those years. And I went from wondering what was an RVU to discovering what the RVU was to asking for open book access to look at the company books of what the RVU and what the billing company to correcting data from the billing company and saying, this data is incorrect and I'm validating why, here's the proof and having billing companies say, you're right, uh, we're sorry, there, there's a mistake. And you know, if people weren't getting paid off this, maybe it would be a different issue. But in pay models where people are paid on data, it fascinates me to know that people get paid on data and we're not sure what that data mm-hmm. is. For example, if somebody is paid for working 80 hours and that's the only thing you're paid on, Hillary, did you work 80 hours? Yes. Everybody in the room can validate, is Hillary's pay correct? She gets paid $200 an hour and she worked 80 hours. It's very simple. Anybody can do that. But if somebody says, Hillary, 30% of your pay is going to come from the RVU bucket. What is the methodology for that? Well, we're not sure. So you're saying that a third of my pay is going to be at risk. We don't know the methodology. We can't challenge it. We can't validate it. That's always been just fascinating to me that that exists. I'd like to ask you what's either your personal experience or when you've interacted with NPs and PAs that you've led. Do you think that there's 100% clarity about how the methodology is devised for an RVU? Yeah, I so... I have never been paid RVU. I will say I've worked with physicians that are paid 50% of their pay is based on RVU. But clearly, based on what you're just saying, very difficult to have 100% transparency and clarity with your RVU-based pay. I know that RVU systems seem like a very slippery slope. I think if you ask any non-medical person how they feel about clinicians being incentivized by what they order or document or the acuity of patient that they see, they might see that, see that as unethical. Um, however, the flip side is that clinicians, you know, may not be documenting well enough to charge appropriately for their services. I, I, I've never been paid, so I don't know how completely transparent they can be with our view-based pay. Um, I know that I had physician friends that when they started, uh, going on RVU-based payments, they worked very hard to do their own investigations to figure out how much they were supposed to be getting paid for each little procedure. That being said, to go through a log after working, you know, 140, 160 hours in the month and figure out if that pay was accurate, I think that would seem like a whole lot of work that they probably were never able to do. So I think that's an interesting point. Thankfully, I don't know. I feel very comfortable with my hourly pay right now, but I know some people that like RVUs, so I, I'm not really an expert there. Yeah, so, and, and thank you for that. And and we, we, I think we'll get to it a little bit more, but the reason I bring this up, and this, this is a topic that we'll get to a little bit later, is I think that staffing groups currently right now 
are faced with some very serious financial struggles. Mm-hmm. And if for no other reason the, the No Surprise mm-hmm. Act has uh, threatened or actually narrowed the profit margin of staffing companies, and as staffing companies face that they have less of a profit margin, it is inevitable for any organization to take another look at where expenses are. And as you know, the, the highest expense for a staffing company is payroll, mm. and, and that's providers. And I, I, I have a sense that what we will see in the next uh, six months, next year, certainly in the next three to five years, will be companies starting to shift more to an RVU model and say, we're not going to pay provider X if they're not producing as much as provider mm. Y. It's... We're we're just going to have to start finding out where we could uh, save money, but 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 the last thing, the last couple of things I'll say on RVUs. I mean, for all our listeners, could you imagine going to Publix and loading up a paper bag? I don't even know if paper bags around anymore with groceries and going to the cashier and saying, "Hey, I'm giving you forty bucks uh, for all these uh, groceries in here," and the cashier is saying, "Well, that's not how it works. I, I have to see what it is. Mm-hmm. So I can charge you accurately." And, and and make sure that it's 40 bucks worth of groceries. Well, uh, no, you don't have to look in there. Just just take my word for it. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of the position that I see providers get placed in when they receive money for a bag full of groceries that a billing company says, trust us, this is what you mm-hmm. build out. This Here's your money. Please move along. Right. Uh, it, it would seem crazy to me that that's how we would budget our household incomes and budget for vacations, for retirements, our kids' college funds, and say, I, I don't know where a third of my pay comes from. I just, I just take <laughs> just the data. Just hope it's and there. I guess, I, I guess it's, I, I hope it's okay. <laughs> um, then the last thing to end on the RVU thing, how is it managed when uh, Dr. Hillary Homez is working with PA Nava and I say, hey, I've got a shoulder reduction that I have to do. I don't even need you to do uh, conscious sedation. I, I can do this on my own with a with a simple joint injection safely and ethically. And you say, well, let me just go take a look. And Dr. Hillary comes over and takes a look and says, yeah, I agree with you. You're good. When that gets billed out and, and then when that goes through the RVU uh, transformer, is the company paying Hillary uh, money for that encounter? Are they paying that RVU completely to me? If Hillary did do a conscious sedation and that's all she did, and I did the reduction. Is Hillary getting the lion's share of RVU? So that brings up a question of how are shared visits, uh, you know, how are they managed when it's a shared visit uh, between an APC and, and a physician? Has any of that ever, have you experienced any of that kind of conversation in your role as a leader? Oh, yeah. It's interesting. Envision, first of all, had talked about going to RVU-based pay for both their PANPs and physicians, um, and they decided against it. I think that they're they're trying things out with the physicians first. They may change, as you had suggested. What is interesting to me is the physicians only get about $5 per patient uh, when the PA sees a patient and, and sees a patient with the PA. They, they get very little percentage of those RVUs that the PA or NP has generated within our department. So I know this varies significantly between different departments. 
Um, residents, they will actually, physicians actually get 100% of the RVUs that the residents see and generate. Um, so it, it right now what is happening, what I'm seeing in my department is that, you know, when it has changed the patients, the type of patients the physicians are eager to sign up for, where years ago, a few years ago, when they were not RVU-based pay, the physicians were, you know, completely okay as long as they knew you and knew your experience and your, you know, um, uh, your capabilities. They were okay with you seeing any acuity of patient, the sickest, any of the procedures. But now you see physicians that they are more eager to pick up the sicker patients or the procedures because they know they're going to generate more RVUs and they won't be receiving a significant amount of uh, payment if if I as a PA see that and sign um, under their name, if that makes sense. Yep, makes total sense. And, and, and to close out that portion of our discussion today, I fully expect players of any given system to behave and conduct themselves exactly as a system that's devised for them to do so. The reason I mention that is I don't blame anybody for operating within the confines of the rule of the system that's created uh, for them to operate. However, I look at leadership, uh, staffing companies to take a look at the systems that they devise and say, is this producing the right conduct that we want? Is this producing the right provider seeing the right patient? Is this pro- is this producing the right amount of supervision from a from a doc to a NP or PA who needs supervision on in, in, in any given case? And, and whatever the system that the staffing company puts in place, I fully expect all participants within the system to fully take advantage of every opportunity that that system creates and says, well, this is what I'm going to do because this is what they've given me to do. So I'm just, I'm going to go see these patients. These are the things I'm going to do. And these are the things I'm not going to do. Um, so uh, I appreciate your input on that because I think that's valuable. Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, Ivy Clinicians. Full disclosure, I am the Vice President of Advanced Practice Provider Services at Ivy. And I joined because I was frustrated with the emergency medicine job search. And I'm guessing you might be frustrated too. I also believe that EM, NPs, and PAs have and will continue to provide valuable contributions to the ED by expanding access to quality emergency medicine care to patients. I am very passionate that when the right EM, NP, and PA are matched with the right ED, then emergency physicians and EM, NPs, and PAs create a most powerful team best equipped to tackle modern and future challenges of emergency medicine. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the Emergency Medicine Workforce, where you can find all 5,549 EDs, filter by your preferences, and connect with the right employers, all for free. Your data is secure, and you pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io, and when you find the right job for you on Ivy, we will send you a bottle of champagne to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, let's get back to the show. Um, let's shift gears a little bit to 
the role of the emergency NP and PA. You know, in, in, in my time, I've seen a lot of change on how NPs and PAs are used. I truly believe that though many EDs across the country or in any given state, they share a lot of common challenges, but yet each ED will have unique and specific staffing needs just for them. An example, uh, what is the percentage of our dock hours on the schedule versus a- APP hours? Or what are the uh, acuity that we allow our MPs and PAs to see? And what are the responsibilities? So I've seen a lot of changes in 20 years. Have you seen these types of changes in, in your time? What are some of the noteworthy changes that you've seen related to how APPs have been used over the mm-hmm. years? in the emergency department? So uh, I've been, as I had previously stated, I've been working in emergency medicine since 2011. And I don't know that I can say I have seen a pattern of change that is consistent within all of the emergency departments I've worked at. Um, I will say that, uh, of course, we were just saying that when the docs started their RVU-based pay in Nashville, that was really the only time uh, that physicians seem more eager to pick up the higher acuity patients and not, you know, allow us to, you know, jump right into the sicker patients. Um, and that was based on just their compensation. Um, and currently where I'm at, the physicians are not, are not on an RVU based pay. Um, and, and I am not either. So we sort of see and treat, uh, whatever we're comfortable seeing and treating, you know, I hope that we continue to have that autonomy going forward. I'm really curious in your experience how it's changed since you have been in the the field longer. So I, I've definitely seen on on one uh, side, I've seen the spectrum of hey, NPs and PS started in fast track, and over the years they slowly inched their way up uh, the ladder of acuity. <laughs> on the other hand. I've seen what I call the wild, wild west approach, where small staffing groups took contracts and they said, wow, these are just really uh, lucrative contracts, Uh, but we don't have enough docs to staff them, or if we stopped them with 100% docs, it wouldn't be as lucrative. So let's let's, uh, kick the tires on these NPs and PAs. Let's see what they can do for us. Mm -hmm. And because they really weren't uh, fully aware of our capabilities and our limitations, they pretty much said, hey, just just grab whatever, just grab whatever. So you might have NPs and PAs uh, kind of relegating themselves towards a lower acuity. And then you had brave souls who said, no, I want to pick up some <laughs> high acuity. And with within that subset of, hey, I want to pick up some high acuity, you had some uh, some folks who had the uh, knowledge and the skill set to do so, but you might have had some who didn't. Mm-hmm. And it's okay if those who didn't still approach those as long as they had the right physician supervision uh, 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 there to to help them navigate and manage those Mm -hmm. cases. I think there were some times where small groups grew too quickly and either the right quality of physician supervision or the right quantity of physician supervision wasn't always there to help out MPs and, and, and PAs navigate their professional development as they were growing. I would say that is a similar experience that I've had. And um, again, I I don't know that the field in general is going towards, you know, more or less autonomy for NPs or PAs. But in my experience, it's been very department dependent. Um, You know, whether you're in a rural, 
uh, medicine environment versus, you know, you're in a, at a teaching institution in the city. They just vary. You know, hopefully we'll find a good balance where, <laughs> where there's the right amount of supervision and physicians are available when we need them because, you know, we, we ultimately do need them. So, Yep, totally agreed with that. Let's shift gears to uh, another uh, topic. Um, last year, in the spring of 2022, ASAP published a position on APPs in the emergency department, and they suggested a drastic change in supervision versus current models. They suggested a market increase in per-case supervision. In my 20 years of experience, I've managed cases that I know that I could have managed better than I did. I saw cases that could have been managed better by other NPs or PAs, or even other physicians. I've also seen some awesome NPs and PAs manage very sick cases and manage them very competently. I've experienced firsthand and have seen great examples of EM physician supervision. But as we just said, I've also seen not great examples of EM uh, physician supervision of NPs and PAs. I do think there's an overwhelming number of great qualified NPs and PAs that can manage a high number of EM cases from beginning of encounter to disposition home without ever even having to talk to a supervising physician. Any departure from this is truly dependent on the variables of, of that de department. Who's my supervising doc? Do, do they like to supervise? Maybe they like to supervise, but they're overwhelmingly getting killed with traumas. Uh, what's the acuity of this case? What's the tempo of the ED? Are we getting killed where it's every provider for themselves or do we have time to kind of chat about certain cases as, as the management develops? What's the staffing matrix look uh, for, for that day? What are the supporting resources? Uh, are we transferring everything out? Are we holding in the ED? All these things uh, have an input on how often and when should I talk to my supervising doc? I'd like to ask you as a leader, have you seen some of these examples that, that, that I've uh, mentioned? Can you give us examples of qualified APPs that are competently managing cases uh, that they don't necessarily need to talk to their supervising doc 100% of the time? Yeah, so, um, you know, since ASAP published their new position, I personally have not seen a change in the way the physicians have treated their APCs. Um, uh, at, there are absolutely many PAs and MPs I've worked with that have, as you have, 20-plus years' experience um, managing uh, complicated cases and working autonomously, I don't think it's realistic to think that a physician will be able to provide direct care with every patient that a PA and NP sees. We just know that is not always realistic. Um, uh, obviously, if a physician wants to be more involved and help and, and offer information in those cases, I'm always happy to gain more wisdom and information from our physicians um, because they have a tremendous amount of, of training and good training. I just don't know uh, if this will change much in the future unless, you know, there's a new generation of emergency medicine physicians that come in with a different mindset that replace all of the physicians that have experience working with experienced PAs and MPs. Um, but I certainly think there is a good balance. And I 
as you had stated, there are, there are times when, uh, when you feel that the overseeing physician is not maybe involved enough and you can't get them involved enough. And there are times when, you know, there is a very simple case that, you know, that you can manage on your own and you don't need direct supervision with the physician. And I just hope that uh, we can find something reasonable in the workplace, which has been most of my experience. I, I've worked with physicians who are very reasonable once they get to know me or my colleagues and the the experience we have. They understand what we're capable of, what we're comfortable with, and they trust that we will get them when when we need them. So I, I think what you just what you just finished here, Hillary, is so important for everybody uh, to hear. And and I'd, I'd like to translate for you, and please tell me if if I butchered uh, what you've just said. What I heard you say is something that I, I, I deeply believe, and that's these decisions on how to utilize the capability of your NP and PA staff for your department. Those decisions are best made locally. Does, does that sound about right? Yeah, absolutely. So have have you not encountered, I'm on shift with physician A. Physician A really doesn't, you know, really kind of gets wrapped up in, in, in their work and they really only need to hear from me, you know, if, if I've got a burning question, something very serious. But physician B, when they're on shift, they really like for me to talk to them as the shift goes on, just kind of keep them updated on things. Mm-hmm. Ha- have you not seen that difference? Oh, definitely. Yeah, and uh, so... I think that it's so important to be respectful of the level of comfort of the supervising physician in any given shift. Like I said, today we might be getting killed and tomorrow it may be a little bit easier and that changes our level of of involvement. So I I think what Mm -hmm. you just said at the end there is very important. What I got out of there is these decisions are best made locally by all parties involved, supervising Mm -hmm. physician, NP, NPA, in their given department for that given time, hey, what's it going to look like today? What's going to look like this month? What's going to look like this season? What's it going to look like mm-hmm. this year? It's better for those to decide what that relationship is going to look like rather than this being mandated from up high somewhere from a different state who doesn't have the demands and challenges that you have at Centennial or that you have at Northcrest. Does mm-hmm. that sound fair? I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Okay, uh, great. In the, in, in the 19 years that I've been leading uh, NPs and PAs, I insisted on maintaining a primary role in recruiting, hiring, scheduling, disciplining actions. Um, I've tried to involve myself in the hospital credentialing piece. Uh, physicians serve on hospital committees uh, that govern physician actions in the EDs. Nurses do the same for nurses. However, we just don't see that with APPs. APPs rarely serve on committees that govern the conduct behavior and actions of other APPs. And I, I do believe that APPs need to fill that void. C- can you share your thoughts on this? How could an APP serve in a role uh, that helps a host hospital govern APP practice? I'm so glad you brought this topic up. Um, I think it's very important. Uh, I think there is a huge void in leadership roles for APPs, which I also had stated earlier, but I also I think this leads to many great PA and NP leaders uh, leaving our field and leaving the career altogether. Um, we definitely need more leadership opportunities. Um, 
I think that you have been a great example of of a leader in our field, and I think that you're you're leading by example now with everything that you're doing. And I I'm, want to hear what you suggest. Uh, any any more specific things, but I do think that there should be more opportunities to serve on hospital committees that govern APP's actions. I think that uh, we could do a lot more uh, to help guide medical education, procedure workshops, case reviews, specifically for PAs and NPs. I, I think we, we lack that um, way too much in medicine. So I am curious what you have in mind, if you have anything else that you've thought of because you have so much experience. Well, th- thank you very much, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you asked. This, this issue of governance is very important to me because in any given ED in America that, that, that's busy, you've worked in an urban one, you're in a rural setting now, the number of patient encounters in a given day uh, that are managed and dispositioned by an APP, they can vary anywhere from 30% to just shy of 50%, maybe in some cases a hair over 50, you know, 50%. That's a big impact that PAs and NPs are, are, are having on departments. So when it comes to, to, to governance, we, we should be able to, to govern ourselves. I was fortunate enough to serve on the licensing board for the state of Tennessee for uh, PAs, and I was even more fortunate uh, to, to be uh, chosen to be the, the, the chairman of it. And this business of being able to govern the conduct and performance of, of your peers is so important that when we give that up to others to do it for us, there are things that are just going to get missed. So again, this issue where in a hospital, tons of committees, physicians serve on, nurses serve on, but very little PAs, but yet, yet we contribute to so many patient encounters. So possible, you know, interventions, uh, you know, I believe in the crawl, walk, run method. I also believe that when, when folks are a little bit either they don't know how to see us or scared of us, uh, they have anxiety over us, that, that relationship is easiest and best men maintained at a distance. It's easier for folks to have anxiety over somebody else from far away, but it's harder to do that when you're up close. And they know you and they interact with you and they say, oh, Hillary, you were really scary from far away and I didn't know what to make of you. But once I started talking to you and working with you, you're like the most charming person I've ever met. You're not bad at all. So <laughs> closing that proximity of geography of distance, let's get more specific. Uh, at, at the facility where I've worked for the past uh, 17, 18 years, I started trying to get a good relationship with the credentials committee and the credentialing staff and saying, I know what kind of job you guys have to do because I do it on the inside. Let me help you sort through some of uh, the uh, the rules that govern uh, PA and MP practice in the emergency department. Let me help you through uh, completing the quarterly or the annual reviews that have to be done so that you uh, satisfy the criteria of JCO. And once folks like in credentialing find out, oh, you actually know about PA and MP practice because you're one of them, you have a lot to say on this issue. Uh, perhaps serving on, on peer reviews, helping to give some input on the practice of PAs or, or NPs. Something that you mentioned a minute ago, which is awesome, 
if a peer NP group can find their kind of expert when it comes to evidence-based medicine and, and have them conduct uh, formal, informal sessions, not only for the MPs and PAs, but that they broadcast this to the supervising docs. It isn't so much that I say this so that supervising docs participate in them, but so that they're aware, hey, these, these guys are kind of governing themselves. They're policing themselves. Uh, I had a really good mentor that used to say, hey, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So it's very yeah. important that we inject ourselves into governing ourselves and having a subject matter clinical expert and having them do things. We, we have uh, one of those at our site, and he's just awesome. Uh, and That takes all the bandwidth of one person to do. And then as some other people in the group try to inject themselves into credentialing committees, sepsis committees, uh, perhaps just even be a consultant or an advisor to the peer review committee. I think those are good ways that NPs and, and PAs can start to get themselves into the the, the big organization and, and start governing themselves. What, what do you think about that? I think that would be phenomenal. I I have was you know I would say that in the past there have been times where I've tried to get into these positions with other companies and just was sort of hitting a ceiling and not making much um, progress. So I, I don't know what your thoughts are on when you're, you're in that situation where you're trying to kind of get a foot into leadership positions, but you're not quite making any headway. What, what you would suggest on that. I know that, you know, Someone like Christian, for instance, worked for a staffing agency for many years. Um, and as you know, probably every physician, nurse, and ER worker would would want Christian on their team. But he found that for years he was asking for even volunteer opportunities to be on some type of leadership team or committee and was not finding there were many opportunities and which eventually led to him uh, leaving the field. So I would love to see that. I mean, that makes me excited. I, I want that to be the case. Um, I know that I think it, it definitely varies between different emergency medicine staffing companies, uh, how much leadership they've allowed their PAs and NPs. I think um American Physician Partners has has utilized PAs and MPs more in leadership than I've seen other companies do. Um, and then, you know, with other companies, sometimes there is a, a random, maybe few and far between, there are leadership positions or regional positions, but their the resp- responsibilities are not well-defined. Uh, so I am, I would love for you know, to see more opportunities for PAs and NPs. I hope that that is the future. Yeah, the, the last uh, contribution I have to that, and we can move on to, to another area, is I, I mentioned this, hey, try to find a way to politely creep your way into the good graces of your hospital's credentialing staff committee and, and show them how you can help them out. Let them know you're not a scary person. You actually have knowledge that you can contribute. And, and, and they would love it because they're always overworked in a credentialing staff office. But if, if I propose that for the host facility, um, and we're not employees of them, 
then surely we can do better for the company that we're actually employed with. So I would put more of an onus on staffing companies uh, who employ us to widen their vision of how to use uh, PA and NP leaders within their organization. And I, I know you alluded to it. And one way is every staffing company, if they're smart, they love to have these town halls, virtual uh, town halls, calls, quarterly, maybe uh, uh, twice a year, where they get uh, high-profile leaders of the staffing companies. Hey, we'd like to hear from you. This, this is a good opportunity for NPs and PAs to consolidate and get on these calls and get on these things and have and repeatedly say, we need more NPPA representation within our own company. Having a lead PA or, or a NP director of the department is a good start, but quite frankly, that's so 1990s. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we need more representation within the infrastructure of the company. We need more NPPA regional directors. If we look at the website of any given staffing company, and you click on the About Us page, let's count how many physicians and even potentially executive nursing leaders are on their About Us page and count uh, the anemic uh, representation of MPs and PAs, yet we represent anywhere from 30 to pushing 50% of the patient encounters that build the wealth of that company. So Mm. for all you MPs and PAs out there, the next group staff call you have, no matter what the agenda is, there's always going to be a, hey, this is the open part of the agenda now. Anything anybody would like to bring up, be consistent with your message, be consolidated. Let them hear this from you over and over again. So every time they have their post-meeting meeting, they say, hey, they're not letting this go. They keep talking about more representation within our own company. They have a point. They represent anywhere from a minimum of 30 to pushing 50% of the patient encounters that build the wealth of this company they probably should have a little bit more say-so somewhere else in the company other than what we currently have. I I hope that's helpful. Yeah, it is. Thank you. Let's see. Uh, When I worked in California, PAs could initiate psychiatric holds on on respective patients. Tennessee doesn't uh, allow that. I see that's a missed opportunity uh, here. Not that I have any great desire to be inundated (laughs) with seeing uh, psych patients. But I've always believed, you know, one of the big benefits of uh, NPRP in the emergency department is to broaden the footprint of the emergency physician and unload them of all the things that we can do so that they can focus on only the things that only they can do. So again, I have no great desire to be inundated and being dubbed the psych PA, but this is just a simple thing that can, that, that can be uh, done. What are your thoughts on missed opportunities in the emergency department somewhere along the lines of this. Yeah, so I've always thought that was odd, um, an odd rule in Tennessee. I mean, we typically do see these patients, uh, but we aren't legally able to sign the involuntary involuntary hold for the psychiatric patients. However, I've never gone to my overseeing physician and presented the patient to them where they've said, no, I disagree. I mean, usually when we're putting an involuntary hold on a psychiatric patient, it's for very good reason. So, you know, we see these patients. A lot of the time I help fill out paperwork, but then we're not legally allowed to sign it. I I think that it is a missed opportunity. 
not really sure how, you know, where to start in changing this, but uh, I think it has been something that has been very odd working in Tennessee, that that, that is sort of one of those rules. Thankfully, I don't see it in many other patient encounters, but it is odd. I'd like to know, and there's a lot of MPs and PAs out there that are either in the same level of leadership that you are, perhaps they just entered into the junior spectrum of their leadership in the emergency department, perhaps they're just staff MPs, MPAs that have thoughts of leadership in the emergency department. Emergency medicine is so fast changing, will continue to change. I'd like to know how do you think leadership in the emergency department has changed you? Hmm. How has it changed me? I I believe that I've become um, a better advocate for my team. Um, I think I have hopefully become more patient over the years. I, I continue to grow. I'm continuing to learn a lot of different things, but I hope that it continues to um, help me to become more of a servant to my team by just listening and hearing how I can help, how I can work harder, how I can advocate for my NPs and PAs on my team. Um, And I feel even though I've been doing this since 2011, I feel like I still have a long ways to go. Uh, so it's an exciting position to be in. I, I've appreciated every bit of it. I think that, uh, folks should know that though you don't know Hillary, the EM force is very, very lucky, uh, to have her, uh, intellect, her, uh, honesty, um, her level of motivation and her sincerity in, in the role, uh, that she is, there's not enough of her. Um, if you're thinking a, a, about leadership, nobody's going to tell you that it's easy. Some of us should have our head examined for wanting it and for staying in it. But we sorely need everybody, everybody uh, in this uh, struggle. Uh, Hillary, as we come to a close here, uh, I'd like you to tell the audience, is there a book or a movie that you would recommend? It doesn't have to have anything to do with medicine, emergency medicine. Any book or movie that has struck your fancy that you'd like to recommend? Oh my goodness. I, you know, thought about this. I don't have anything in particular I can, I could honestly think of. (laughs) I get analysis paralysis. Um, I generally have just been trying to read my Bible more. So (laughs) is that the perfect answer? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. You could definitely run for office. That's a good one. Thanks. How about, um, is there a hero of the department uh, that that you'd like to recognize? Doesn't matter, you know, if they hear this podcast or not. Yeah, bes- besides the obvious, I think my heroes are generally our secretary and our EVS personnel. They probably don't get enough enough credit or enough pay, and they work hard, and I, I love them dearly. So. Those are my heroes that I could think of. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. And I know that they would appreciate it because I, I try to say over and over again, this is a team sport and it takes everybody. Um, if folks would like to reach you, how can folks reach you? I think that you've provided my LinkedIn. Uh, P- 
people could reach out to me by LinkedIn or by email address is probably the best way. Hillary, I'd like to sincerely thank you uh, for joining us, for being a part of this, but more importantly, for sharing your perspective with the audience. Again, I think sometimes we take for granted the things that we think we know, and it's important for people on the entire spectrum uh, of listening to this podcast, on the spectrum of experience of NPs and PAs to hear some of the valuable things that you've had to say. Thank you very much for joining. It has been my privilege. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I would like to thank our podcast producers, the great team at uh, Earfluence. And finally, a big thanks to you, the clinician. For over 20 years, I worked with you. I learned from you. I've been inspired by you. I know the sacrifices that you and your families have made. I know that challenges that you faced. More importantly, I know your value to the market. Thank you all for listening to the Emergency NPNPA Workforce Podcast. I am Omar Nava. We'll catch you at the next episode. And don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app.